Hello, my name is Brian Silver, pastor of Hope Community Church in Lower Town in the beautiful and historic neighborhood of Lower Town in St. Paul, Minnesota. And welcome to Sunday Rewind, where we discuss the major doctrines of the Christian faith and then discuss the real-life implications of that doctrine with a guest from our church. Well, hello again, and welcome back to Sunday Rewind. Uh, This is actually episode three, uh, if you've been following along uh, with our podcast, and and, um, I really just want to jump right in to the doctrine this week, uh, specifically this week, we're going to be looking at um, the doctrine of the Word of God. Um, and when I normally teach this in systematic theology, this is actually about six chapters worth, um, split up into three weeks, which is going to be about, oh, you know, five hours plus of lecture. I'm going to attempt to fly through uh, and hit the the main points of interest or maybe uh, controversy, uh, where the most questions are within the class. And I want to do that in the, you know, the next 20 uh, to 30 minutes. And, and so I'm just going to go ahead and get started as the best I can to um, walk through some of these main issues in the, in the doctrine of the word of God, and hopefully maybe answer some questions. And, and then uh, after this, uh, really be able to interview some people from the church and get down to the, the again, the practical um, understanding um, of, of what it is, how does this doctrine impact my life. And so let's go ahead and start. Let me just give a couple maybe objectives uh, for where I want to go uh, just now. So the, the first one is uh, how God communicates with humanity. Um, look at some different views on that. Um, number two is how did we get our Bible as we know it today? So, so when you hear what is the Bible or this is the Holy Bible, I have it on my shelf. How did we get that? Three, I'm going to be looking at the inerrancy of Scripture uh, there are some different views out there, and, and I personally and my church uh, would hold to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. And then four, which will just be very brief at the end, uh, will just be four characteristics of Scripture. Um, and that's going to take about uh, a minute maybe, and yet that would be a whole week, if not two weeks, um, that you could really spend uh, really digging in on that. But I think it's important just to, to highlight some some things. Okay, so one thing that I always start off every lecture when I do this is I ask the question to my students, and I don't mean this to be um, dark or grim or anything like that. I'm just trying to prove a point here, okay? So just bear with me. Um, And I I have them describe the events uh, that you saw or that stuck out to you, uh, that you witnessed, that you went through on September 11th, 2001. Uh, I need to change that question and uh, because now my students are so young, they don't even, they don't remember. They weren't even born uh, when that happened. Uh, so the whole point of that, right? So maybe that question needs to change to, hey, where, where were you when, when the COVID thing, the, the lockdown really started to happen? And, and I think you'd probably remember that, uh, just the details of it, where I was or, or when it, this thing really hit me or when they, they canceled the NBA and how that really, really kind of like set in of like, wow, this is, this is real. Um, I do that for a reason. A lot of people will attack the validity of the scriptures, saying that the disciples wrote uh, these uh, these gospels a long time uh, after the fact, uh, long after Jesus was gone. We're talking 20, 30, 40, 50 years after these events took place. That's when they wrote these things down. And so I, I bring this up because if if you're like me, 
that on September 11th, 2001 is a day that I could probably very accurately recount almost to the, to the minute, at least for sure to the hour of specific events that I saw that day and what happened and what stood out to me. Um, it, it was a wild day. And now here we are, uh, you know, t- 20 years, 19 years later, uh, that, that I remember this stuff like it was yesterday. I mean, I, I can remember that. So you can imagine the things that these disciples, that the apostles would have seen, witnessed firsthand with Jesus. Now, when he heals somebody of blindness, somebody who's born blind, and he touches them and they're healed, you would think that they would remember that. Well, how could they remember the conversations? Oh, I'm pretty sure you would. Um, so that just kind of throw that out there to say, I think, and not, not just I think, the whole point, my whole, my whole religion, my whole faith is based off of this book. And if it's not trustworthy, if it's not true, what are we doing, right? I'm wasting my time. You're wasting your time listening to me talking about this. And so let's just jump into this. So the, the, there's different forms of the word of God. So just bear with me. I don't mean there's different forms of the Bible and God um, has many different Bibles out there. It's not what I mean. What I mean is that he, he talks. Um, he, he reveals himself to humanity in different ways. One of them is as a person, as Jesus Christ. Uh, John 1, 1 talks about this. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. That Jesus is technically labeled and, and is, has the, the, the name as the word of God. And so as he's interacting with people, as we hear his story, as we get to know Jesus, that is the word of God. That is God revealing who he is to us. The second one specifically is God decrees. Now, what this means is that there are, are instances in the Bible where God just says something, right? Let there be light, and, and then there was light. God is decreeing this thing to happen, and then it happens. The second one is God's personal address. This is where he's specifically talking to people. Um, and, and for both of these, there's not really a whole lot, a whole lot less of God decrees. And then there's a little bit more of God's personal address where God is speaking, uh, to people. Um, in the new Testament, there's only like three of these, right? There's, there's one at the baptism of Jesus where, where God shows up and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, I just got done preaching through the, the book of Job and there's, uh, you know, over two chapters in there where God is specifically addressing Job. The third one that is far more common is through human lips. And this would be especially in the Old Testament where you have a prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. And so those are three different ways where God communicates his word um, to us by speech. The the fourth one, though, that we're going to be spending the most of our time on uh, specifically today is going to be God's written form. And that's the Bible, that God has revealed himself in written form to us through human authors that are divinely inspired. And we're going to hopefully try to cover all of that. Um, and so what does that look like? So the question that, that I usually ask at this time is, is what forms of God's word are, are suitable for today? Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about what does the, the gift of prophecy look like? Can people speak in tongues? Is that equivalent to the scriptures? Well, guess what? If you hold on, uh, again, this is episode three, and it, this technically is only chapter two uh, in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book. I will cover that, uh, but it's not until we get to chapter 51 and 52. So if you hold on for uh, a long time, we will get there 
and say which what is specifically valid for today. Um, and so that's that's where I'm going to stop. I'm going to keep moving here. How did we get our Bible as we know it today? It's what we call the canon of Scripture. And if you listen to the um, uh, one of the, the the first episode that I have on here on on what is systematic theology, and, and even the other one on hermeneutics. The canon of scripture, canon simply means rule. Um, it's just what we would normally, just our common language, we would just call the Bible. Canon is is just the rule. It's the measuring uh, rod in which we would use. And so that's that's where we get that canon, C-A-N-O-N of scripture. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a lot of misconception about how we got our Bible. And, and that is going all the way back to the, the 300s, uh, 393 and 397, um, that, that when uh, Saint, uh, sorry, not, I was going to say St. Augustine, that's not right, it's, it's Emperor Constantine is going to be the ruler that, that up until that point, Christianity was, for, for the majority of, of history, well, again, it only started in 33 AD, but from then up until when uh, Constantine, Constantine came into play, Christianity was, was not um, favorable uh, when you were a citizen of, of Rome. Constantine comes in. He has this lo- this crazy vision that says, "Yep, we're gonna we're gonna win." And listen, I- I'm pretty sure that was political. All right, he made a political move and said, "There seems to be a lot of Christians here. Why don't we just change Rome to be a Christian nation?" And then, boom! I'll get the trust of the people. Hey, let's let's throw a Bible together. Okay, that's that's kind of how some people interpret that. It's just it's just not how it worked historically. All right. Um, so I want to quote here F.F. Bruce uh, in his book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Um, and uh, why is there not, the rest of my footnote is not showing up here. It is on page 44, I apologize. And um, sorry, page 22, are they reliable? Uh, from F.F. Bruce, again, he says this, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included into a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority. All right, what's he saying? He's saying Constantine didn't put our Bible together. Matter of fact, when you study the history, there were two major church groups that they came together. Uh, and said, hey, what which books are you using? Which books are we using? Oh, wow, imagine that. We're all using the same exact books. And the church was already had a functioning Bible that they had been using. This just formalized it. All right, so there's three things I want to briefly share about what, what makes a Bible book in the Bible, right? What, what gives it the authority to be in the Bible? Um, one, and I and I think this is this is the most important one, uh, wrote a paper on this in seminary. I, I just think it's 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 very important, and that is conformity, in the sense of does all the books of the Bible do they do they have one common theme? Are they conformed together, even though they've been written over thousands of years, written by forty plus different authors? Is there one theme, and it's all pointing to Jesus and His honor and His glory? Is that the case? And and to me, that's huge. Um, for example, there is a, uh, a book called The Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard about that before. But in that, in that book, the book, when you read it, it sounds fantastic. I mean, you're like, wow, how is this not in our Bible? This seems really good. It's good theology. It's good teaching. Nothing is, is necessarily new or mind-bending, you know, in the sense of, of, of theology of how we should live and behave as Christians. But right at the very end, uh, there is a supposedly, a, you know, quote-unquote, of, of Jesus where he says, 
that, that in the future, in, in glory, there will be no women, and that women can actually not enter into heaven. He says, unless they become men, then they can go to heaven. Now, what in the world are you talking about? This None of that makes any, any sense, um, even societally then, now, wherever, but in the conformity of scriptures. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so that's that's a really important one. The second one that I think is very important, but it probably isn't the most important because there's a couple exceptions to the rules, is uh, apostolicity, uh, meaning were they in some way, shape, or form connected to an apostle. And so there were some books that were written that weren't directly connected with an apostle in the sense that an apostle penned the words, but there were people that knew the apostles, that traveled with the apostles, or the apostles quoted those books um, the one that is the is the biggest outlier is actually the the book of Hebrews, but that one has uh, without a doubt uh, been said yep uh, from the from the church, and that's the third point is Catholicity. Uh, Catholic simply means universal. So when we talk about the Catholic Church, they're just saying we're the universal church, uh, and so Protestants we kind of have to say we're the Church Catholic. Uh, so it's there. It just it's the same the same thing, but we don't want to be confused with um, just a different denomination within that. So. I hope that makes sense. I'm going to keep moving on here. Um, uh, and other, so all I'm just trying to say is that there, there are some really important things uh, that, that come into play when, when the books of the Bible, why we have the ones that we have. And, and those three things, right? Conformity, apostolicity, and, and Catholicity, um, they have to all be essential. And, and they're, they're accumulative, right? They kind of build on top of each other. Um, that, the, that the church was saying, hey, these are the books that we're going to use. Uh, because they conform and uh, there is connections to apostles, if not penned by apostles themselves. Uh, Wayne Grudem says this on page 54. He says, to add or subtract from God's words would be to prevent uh, God's people from obeying him fully, for commands that were subtracted would not be known to the people, and words that were added might require extra things the people which God had not commanded. Thus Moses warned the people of, of, of Israel, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, uh, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Uh, and that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Now, I want to look at the Old Testament canon, spend a little bit of time of looking at how do we get our Old Testament and then our New Testament. Uh Let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls are really important. I'm going to bring that up here in, in a little bit again. Um, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they did is they 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 jumped forward our timeline on the um, age, how old, I guess it would be that the way around, it, it, it backed up our timeline on how old some of our earliest manuscripts uh, were. Okay, so so from the time, our oldest manuscript, let's say of, of Isaiah or something like that was a thousand years removed from when Isaiah actually walked on the earth. How, how do we know that Isaiah actually wrote this book? And even though we have thousands and thousands of copies and fragments of the book of Isaiah, how do we know that this was a thing? Well, uh, it was kind of, it's kind of a cool story, but some, some kid was out farming his goats. He saw a cave, he decided to throw some rocks up in the cave, um, heard some jars breaking and, and was like, oh, what's that? Climbed up into the cave and and saw all these old jars full with these parchments and these scrolls. Um, it got dark, it got a little cold, so he decided to light several of them on fire to keep warm. Uh, lost himself a couple million billion dollars there, um, and because uh, these are these are just priceless. And and so, what then happened though is when they finally started doing the research on these, 
that it was, this is now bringing uh, our manuscript dates much, much closer to the original. But then as they, they, they take that one, that's 800 years older than the ones that we had, and they can lay them basically on top of each other. And it's an exact copy. And, and that was just the entire aspect of the Dead Sea Scrolls just, again, proved what the church has been saying for thousands of years, that these copies are meticulously accurate. Um, so uh, intertestament, uh, intertestamental period, that's where we, we get uh, maybe some books in what we would call the Apocrypha, um, where you have books like the Maccabees, which are great historical books, but not part of the canon um, for, for any number of reasons, which I'm not going to get into that right now. That might be a different conversation later. Um, but those books are not included in the canon. All right. I'm just, I'm going to keep moving here just for time's sake. The second is the new Testament canon. How did, how did we get these, uh, writings, uh, the writings of the apostles under the Holy spirit, uh, whereby apostles possess equal authority of old Testament prophets, right? So when, a, when an apostle is writing or giving credence or giving, uh, somebody else to be writing, it's, it's just as if a prophet of old, uh, were, were writing. I already talked about some of the, the outliers here. Uh, but their their goal, their aim was to record and interpret and apply uh, to the lives of believers the great truths about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's that conformity, that they're all trying to say the same exact thing. Um, test of, of canonicity. Let me just read. I've got a little jot down here. This isn't necessarily a quote here, but absolutely necessary that the books uh, have divine author, authorship. If the words of the book are God's word through human authors, and if the early church under the direction of the apostles preserved the book as part of scripture, then the book belongs in the canon. All right. Uh, let, let me, let me, so uh, again, this is where I would normally pause, ask for questions, and that's hopefully what the second part will be uh, when I have some, some of my guests that we can maybe dig into some of these if they got questions about it. I'm assuming that the questions they would have would be similar to pretty much anybody that would be listening uh, to this podcast. Now, the second one, and this is by far the most controversial uh, thing that um, we're, we're probably going to cover or talk about today, and that is the inerrancy of Scripture. Are there any errors in the Bible? And there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to this uh, topic. Um, what, what is the meaning of inerrancy? The definition that, that we would use that we have in our elder statement of faith is that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts. All right. Now, here's the here's the caveat to that. The little asterisk next to that definition is that guess what? We don't have any original ma manuscripts. Okay. So are we saying that the Bible is full of errors? No, 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 no. It's not. It's not. Not what we're saying. Okay. Now, let me let what I let me give it a little bit deeper explanation of inerrancy here. Uh, these are some points that Gruda makes. Uh, number one, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary language of everyday speech. Okay. For example. Uh, and this has been brought up. These are real arguments, okay? That's that at one point in history, someone had made the argument that the Bible has errors uh, because it talks about the sunrise and the sunset. Well, if if it really is the word of God and is without error, they would say that when the earth rotated and you could see the sun or when the earth rotated and, and you couldn't see the sun, probably in more scientific terms, they they phrase that. Uh, therefore, the Bible has errors, and, and we can't be we can't be trusted. That that doesn't that's not true, right? For for me to say the sunrise or the sunset or any any you know theologian or, or doctor of anything, you wouldn't discredit their speech because they said sunrise. Um, and so it's just that you can use ordinary language. Number two, the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free 
quotations, okay? And that's going to happen. There's going to be uh, different versions of even of people quoting the same verse that are going to have a little bit different wording. The point is that the the, the meaning behind that doesn't change. Uh, that I can I can say, hey, I'm quoting this person, um, and and I can say it as best I possibly can. Uh, and if I mess up, it, I'm not. It doesn't mean I'm 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 with or I'm I've, I've erred, right? I haven't changed what this original thought was. I'm not misquoting them. Uh, that's a totally different thing uh, from saying I've, I have a loose quotation or or I'm paraphrasing rather than misquoting somebody. It's very different. Uh, third, it is consistent with inerrancy to have uh, unusual or uncommon grammatical construction of the Bible. We're not going to get into that a whole lot, but there there are some different spellings or phrases or, or those kinds of things that we would say, okay, is that a, is that an error? No, because it it keeps the the main thought is still there, um, and so that that's a that's a big deal. Okay, so here's some current challenges to inerrancy, and this is where we really get down to the uh, the nitty gritty. Um, this is uh, the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. This is this is the difference between inerrancy and infallibility. Some would say that infallibility um, is actually a stronger way to say uh, that the Bible is inerrant. Uh, because they're saying uh, that it is it is infallible in in places of faith and practice, and so they would say the Bible is only authoritative for our faith and practice, and so therefore it is infallible on those aspects. Whereas inerrancy is saying it's only inerrant in the original manuscripts, which we're about to get to, um, specifically a little bit more detailed, right? Um, and so we we have no iner- inerrant manuscripts, therefore. Uh, to talk about an inerrant Bible is mis- misleading, and and that's just that's just that's just not wrong. It, it's a wrong view on what we're talking about when we say the Bible is inerrant. Uh, the Bible writers accommodated their message in minor details to false ideas current to the day, and affirmed or taught those ideals in an in- incidental way. That's what that's what people in, in the uh, infallibility court would say is just saying that they're they're taking their culture and they're they're putting it into scripture, that we can't say that this message they wrote is for us today. That's simply not, not what we're getting at, right? And they would also say that inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect of scripture and neglects the human aspect. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm okay with that, actually. I do believe that the scriptures were written by human authors. They have their own personalities that come out, their own people that they, they greet and they, they, they give their welcome to, and, and they have their own, own writing styles, all these different things. That's, that's great. That's huge. But it is divinely inspired. Um, here's the problem with denying inerrancy, okay? So if, we, if we're going to go with uh, faith and practice only, okay, if we, if we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. We may imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters also, right? So, so if, if God can, can be wrong in these things or that or this, does that mean I, I guess I can do that? I can tell a little white lie or I can misdirect or mislead somebody, and I guess that's okay, right? It's a, it's a, this is a, a bad slippery slope. Um, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says. Oh, did, did he really create the world? Did, was, what's going on here, right? Um, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself. Just for further illustration on this point, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Jurassic Park. If anybody knows me, uh, they, they know that about me. Uh, in that movie, though, there's a scene where Ian Malcolm, uh, he's, a, he's a doctor of, of the chaos theory. He's sitting in the back of a, of a Ford Explorer. He's going on the tour. 
and he's having a conversation with with Dr. Sadler, and he says he says this. He's just kind of you know theorizing, thinking out loud, and he says this. He says, "God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs." And he kind of laughs, and 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 then Dr. Sadler, a woman, she says, "Dinosaurs eat man. Women inherit the earth." Right, it's just kind of a, it's just a funny moment, but but there's this this ideal uh, that in the sense that 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 man's logic and understanding. I, I said that because his phrase of, of man destroys God. That's just been part of it, right? That we can reason, we can think, uh, and so therefore we can outthink this ancient you know text of the Bible, and it's it's irrelevant uh, now, and it's just simply not the case um, that we we have to be held to a standard by our Creator. And that that is the Bible. I want to briefly talk about um, uh, sola scriptura versus uh, solo scriptura. I, I do this simply. This is still kind of in the inerrancy versus infallibility, and this is kind of one of those arguments that I'll that I'll use every once in a while. That I think some people that that would say it's infallible um, in in areas of faith and practice. Well, we this can't be my highest authority. Or, or what they would say is, this can't be my only authority. Well, the Bible is not my only authority. It's my highest authority, right? I've got an old 96 Jeep Cherokee XJ. If I need to go work on my Jeep, I don't go consult my Bible, right? Well, what's what's wrong with my, my valve cover? Well, I don't, I don't do that. That doesn't make any sense. It's not my only authority. It's not so low scriptura. It's so la scriptura. It's, it is my highest authority, all right? Now, uh, manuscripts, why don't we have any? Well, to be honest with you, this is actually one of those things where I think God knows what he's doing. I think if we actually had an original copy of something that the Apostle Paul wrote, the Apostle Peter or anybody or Jesus did something, people would lose their minds, maybe even start wars over it. Oh, wait, that's already happened with these these relics that people actually think are part of that, that's it's just ridiculous, right? Um, I, I'm thankful that we don't have any of that stuff. I think it's it's a good thing that we don't. Okay, but but if we don't have any, then how can we say the Bible is without error, right? When I pick up my Bible, it's sitting on here. I guess it's, I'm going to be honest. It's been a while since I've opened an actual physical Bible. I use my computer and my cell phone for everything. How can I say that I know what that what I'm reading is without error? Well, here's here's a, I think a great proof that I that I use every every semester is simply the volume uh, of manuscripts that we have. Yes, they're copies, but the volume that we have and how few minor errors and discrepancies. You can Google this. You can fact check me all you want on this. All right. And the thing is, I actually have to do this every single year before I teach this class because the number of New Testament and, and Old Testament copies and manuscripts are, 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 they grows every year. They find more and more and more. And then they go and they check those with the other old ones that they had. And they go, wow, guess what? Who knew it matches up? For an example, Julius Caesar wrote the book Gaelic Wars in 59 BC. The earliest copy that we have of that is copied and written in 900 AD. So we're talking 840 years later, somebody, then we found a copy. And guess what? We only have 10 copies of that. And yet nobody uh, would say, well, Julius Caesar didn't actually write that book. Oh man, it's full of errors, right? Well, now granted, 
we gotta, I gotta give them a little break here because I know they're we're not world religions are not based off of Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. I understand that, right? There's a this we're it's a little apples and oranges here. I'm just trying to prove a point, okay? That that the their people critics are not attacking Julius Caesar for being the author the way that they attack authors of the Bible and and the inerrancies and discrepancies that may be or may not be contained in those manuscripts. Homer's Iliad, we all had to read it. Uh, I think I, I, I don't know the younger generations. They're not reading anymore. I think I just asked this last semester how many people had to read it. And it was about half the room. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, specifically the Iliad was written in 900 BC. Earliest copy is 400 BC. So a difference of 500 years, we have 643 copies and there's a, there's a larger error rate. It's about 95%. Okay. So some of the copies when they, you know, take this copy and they put it over the top of that copy, you know, think of it like a, a projector, old school, uh, you know, transparency screen. Um, there's a 5% difference, which isn't that bad. That's actually really good, especially when you have 643 different copies. That's fantastic. Well, the New Testament that they're written, you know, approximately right around 50 AD. Um, the last one or the earliest copies that we have is in 130 AD. So less than 100 years later. And we have well over 5,000 copies, and there's a 99.8% accuracy rate. And the little discrepancies that are there are a spelling error or a well, word placement error, but none of them change the meaning of anything. No sentences are changed. It's just an overwhelming um, volume of data that we have that when I open my English translation of a Bible, I know that this has been well fought, well researched, well translated to the best of a translator's ability to be able to, to, to get the thoughts and ideas from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek into English. And I can trust it. Now I can open up, I have, I have used many different versions of the Bible. I talked about that in my uh, second uh, episode, if you listen to that. Um, uh, another quote here that I have from Augustine. Uh, he says, he says this, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only the canonical books of scripture. Of these alone, I do most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. The authors, right? The originals were completely free from error. And this is, he's only a couple hundred years later. And he says, and if in these writings, I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed the truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty, right? This copy that I have has some kind of problem or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, right? So they're going from Hebrew into Latin or Hebrew into, into Greek where they're, where they're, where he would have been reading uh, and saying, the translator must've gotten this wrong. Um, or I myself have failed to understand it. It cannot be in the original, cannot be from the author's pen that there was some kind of error. And that's where that whole conformity comes into play. Um, I'm a little over time. I'm at 31 minutes. So just let me just briefly talk about these four characteristics of scripture. One is the authority, right? That, that the Bible has authority and it's my highest authority. I am a pastor of a church. I'm part of a, of a larger network of churches. If my, my denominational leader, if my senior pastor, if whoever comes and says, hey, this is what the Bible says about this, and I disagree with that, and I have good warrant on Scripture to be able to, to disagree with that, hey, listen, the Bible, right? Sola Scriptura. This is my highest authority. I don't care if you're my boss. Uh, this is my standard of truth, right? It's, this is my authority. Uh, B is the clarity, the clarity of Scripture. 
um, that, that the things that are necessary for salvation, right, for faith and practice, if, if we want to use that language, it's clear uh, that there's not a whole lot of, right, there's, of course, there's disagreements on certain things, whether it's, that's baptism or gifts of the Holy Spirit, those kinds of things. Some of them might be a little bit cloudy, might be a little bit gray, and people might completely disagree on them. And yet the things that we would say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he loves me, he took on flesh, he died for my sins, and he rose again on the third day and he descended into heaven, that's clear, right? I've understood that since I was a child. Uh, C is the necessity, or <laughs> letter, letter C. Uh, number C is the necessity of scripture in that, this, in that the Bible is necessary for salvation. Not necessarily reading the Bible, of course, somebody can share this text um, but, but let's take this, uh, imaginative and I'm going to open a whole big old can of worms here and we'll get there in weeks to come, but let's just take this imaginative man on the Island. Um, can he be saved without ever hearing of Jesus or reading the Bible? Um, and, and the answer is no, uh, that he, that, that the apostle Paul makes this clear. How can they hear without a preacher? Um, and so this is, a uh, a vital aspect, the necessity of Scripture, and finally, the sufficiency of Scripture. This is everything we need, uh, that for me to live my life the way that, that God has called me to be, to be molded into the image of, of Jesus, um, that I have everything I need right in front of me in God's Word, and I can take it as trustworthy and true, um, and, and that what I'm reading really is what God has for me today. Thanks again for joining. Stick around and we will uh, be joined by our guest to discuss some of the things that we talked about and hopefully uh, open up a little bit more and maybe dig in a little bit deeper on some of these topics. So thanks. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll see you in just a second. All right. Well, again, I want to welcome everyone back to Sunday Rewind. This is kind of the second half of the second part of, of why we're doing what we're doing. And we have been specifically looking at the doctrine of the word of God. And so I have a couple of guests with me tonight. Um, and so I want to introduce uh, you all to Nolan Bauer and Matt Almquist. Uh, these guys have been coming to the church uh, lower town since we started. Um, and uh, they've, they've been awesome. And Matt, Matt and his wife, Lauren, uh, Lauren wasn't able to be here uh, because what, what was going on with her, Matt, again? Oh, she's got training to do for uh, grad school. Yeah, so she's got some grad school stuff. But we'll, we'll hope to have uh, Lauren on here at some point in the future. And, uh, so anyways, Matt, why don't you, uh, just kind of introduce yourself? What, who, who are you? And, uh, yeah. Why, why is, why is this doctrine? I don't know. Why do you care? What's the big deal? Well, diving right into it. I like it. Hey everybody. My name's Matt. I have, uh, like Brian said, I've been going to Hope Community Church Lower Town for, uh, a while. Oh, I don't even know how long, uh, whenever we started Brian, yeah, about, two, that about one. two and a half years ago. Yeah. There we go. And took a little hiatus, uh, for about six months when my wife and I, uh, lived overseas with my former company. We were living in Thailand for a little bit, which was a cool opportunity. Um, so I, I'm a project manager, uh, currently in the industrial, um, products market doing product development. And, uh, yeah, I, I think this doctrine is really important because, um, it, it, it shows up everywhere in our lives, whether you're, um, discussing theology with someone, you know, really well, or even barely, um, it always comes up how you determine truth and how you see the world is so much shaped through the lens of the Bible, at least for Christians. And so it's going to be the core thing that people attack when they disagree with you. 
And so knowing why it's important, how it was developed, why you can rely on it, um, it's going to come up constantly and it's going to be necessary for you and for us to maintain our faith and to glorify God through that. So I think uh, it's it's one of the foremost things that the Christian really needs to understand. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, you know, that's a big, that's a big point in a sense of, uh, you know, the Wayne Grudem systematic theology book starts with scripture because if, if scripture is not understood, then everything else I understand about God doesn't make any sense. Right. It's, it's all just kind of, yeah, whatever. Um, that's why he, he starts it off that way. Um, but Matt, you have a, you have a podcast too, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Ooh, shameless plug. Thanks. Uh, theology of plain men. <laughs> it, uh, it probably gets less views than this will, but, um, it's a, it's a group of about six or seven of us who went to the university of Minnesota together. And the, the idea behind it is that theology matters no matter who you are. So yeah, you could be a, a Brian or a Nolan who are going are either in ministry or going into ministry respectively, but for the rest of us who are just lay people who are working, uh, your normal jobs or, or our parents or whatever it might be. Uh, theology still applies to us and it matters a lot. Uh, one of my favorite phrases that hope uses a lot is that bad theology hurts people. And uh, I think in the same way, good theology helps people and gives a lot of life. So we just want to show that normal people need it and can use it. Yeah, totally. I, I love it. I mean, that's, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of why I even want to do this, this second part of this um, of just get, interviewing people from the church, getting real, uh, down to the down to the nitty gritty, because um, it, it it is it's essential. It, it it really does matter what we're doing and, and what we say. I always use the analogy of Roger Williams. Uh, he was he lived in the mid 1600s and literally wrote the book on separation of church and state. He's he's uh, I, I love the guy, uh, but he had one one position on one theology that changed his whole life, and that was um, uh, something called apostolic succession meaning that he didn't believe or he believed that the that Jesus had to kind of hand on this thing to the apostles and they kind of had to pass this on and uh he said well that that the only people the only church that can claim that is the is the catholic church and he's like man I know some of these catholic priests I don't think they have it and so therefore we're all doomed and he left his family he left his city he moved out to the wilderness uh lived with the native americans uh totally abandoned his life um yeah, the- theology matters. You know, it's kind of a it's kind of a big deal, and and that's one that's one thing, right? That could totally alter your life. And so, no, that's great. All right, Nolan, you're up, man. So Nolan, uh, just so everybody knows, he took, he actually went through systematic theology. So maybe you can you can talk about that a little bit too. I did go through systematic theology. I was in, I was an LDI Trek One intern in this fall of 2018 through the spring of 2019. And Brian, whether for good or for bad, was my teacher that year. It was wonderful. <laughs> I have high regard for the man. Uh, yeah, but I, uh, I actually really do take this particular doctrine as rather, rather serious or near and dear to me. Um, I think, for one, there's a need for anchor points in people's lives. And if you don't have particular things to which you can anchor yourself, you're just going to be a floating boat that's tossed around in the sea. 
and I think that was my life for a long time prior to becoming a Christian was I, I didn't really have that anchor point. It was just a bunch of random thoughts and morals and good deeds that I thought would get me through, but they didn't. And so uh, the second reason that this is near and dear to me, mostly because part of my own story of even becoming a Christian was an extensive amount of research on whether a Bible, the Bible, could be authoritative. Mm -hmm. And eventually I found it could be because uh, I was comparing and contrasting with the Book of Mormon primarily in my case. Uh, as I was considering whether or not to be Mormon versus a Christian, and so, yeah, I'm 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 with Matt on a lot of what he said. Yeah, great. All right, well, let me uh, let's just jump in here. I, I sent you guys a couple questions, and and again, these questions that I sent them, uh, they're questions that I would normally just ask in my class, uh, just to try to get a little bit more practical, right? You you can get stuck in the clouds, you can get up in theology world. And great, wow, cool. Uh, but what does it what does it matter? And so, one of the questions that I, I asked them and that I asked my class um, is that somebody I know, whether it could be my neighbor, it could be someone in my small group, someone in my church, uh, fill in the blank, anybody, right? And, and this has happened to me numerous times. Um, and, and maybe you guys can can talk into maybe the practicality of even this question. But um, some somebody asked you the question: God told me to tell you. Uh, that we need to start giving more money to the church, right? That so let's let's just let's ask the question. Look at the question. Um, is there anything wrong about the question? Is there anything good about the question? Right? Like let's again, we don't know this person. We don't know their heart. We don't know all the details, right, in the background and all that stuff. But um, I don't know. What what are your guys' initial initial thoughts when you when you see that? I, I get really nervous anytime someone tells me that God told them something. Um, <laughs> and and that, that might be for better, but it certainly might be for worse. Um, I grew up in a really care, uh, relative to hope, a, a very charismatic church and faith family. Um, so I'm, I growing up, I was very used to hearing, you know, God told me this. Um, I had a dream about this. Um, I know this is true because of this feeling I have. And I know that's God telling me that. Um, and, and I'm not saying there's not a place for that, um, uh, because there, there certainly may be, but I think I've seen it personally, but especially publicly, um, by high profile Christians misuse the ability to just say, God told me this. And, um, it's really dangerous and it can be a trump card over mm -hmm. everything else because who's going to disagree with God. Right. right. You don't right. want to go being like, oh, no, he didn't. He uh, he wouldn't have said that. It's, it's difficult yeah. to say that because people who would make that conjecture would be pretty hopefully be pretty serious about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's really difficult then to combat. So uh, initially, <laughs> my, my thought would be to put up a red flag and say, how do you know that? But um, maybe not completely write them off. I don't know. What do you think, Nolan? Yeah, I. I wouldn't want to write someone off entirely because I think God does speak to us and he does say things to us sometimes in ways that are uh, out of the ordinary, extraordinary, you could say. And I, I don't want to discount someone entirely, but I do want to hear where they're coming from because I do think that if you make yourself the locus of authority, as in, you say, God told me to do X, 
or why you you've put yourself in a position where someone can't disagree with you because I can't tell you, no, you didn't hear from God, or at least a particular person isn't going to say, yeah, no, I, you know, I didn't hear from God. I just made all that up. Um, But I think we do hear from God. Uh, But I think there are particular, I should say, regular channels through which God generally communicates to people and and one of those is scripture. And so I think whenever we hear someone saying, God told me X or God told me to tell you this, I think we need to filter it through scripture to see, well, maybe I can take what you say at face value and let me let me examine it. Does it actually line up with what it says in scripture? Does it actually have any standing when you compare it to what God has already said there? Yeah, Nolan, I think if I could play off of that, um, you mentioned in your opening that you had to observe and understand the Bible and its authority and authenticity when deciding whether or not you were going to go toward Mormonism or go towards uh, Christianity. And uh, as Brian and Nolan both know, I had a little bit of an interaction with Mormonism as well, not to the extent Nolan did, but in uh, the se- on the senior year of college at the U of M. Uh, my buddy Mike Francis, Michael Francis, and I interacted with Mormons a lot, and we actually met up with them on a weekly basis uh, in their chapel on the U of M campus, and just had theological talks with them to understand where are they coming from, um, what's their theology, are are we really understanding them, and are they understanding us? Because we both claim to be Christians, we both claim to be true followers of Jesus Christ. Right, right. Uh, we believe very different things. So how is that true? And we both say the Bible is correct and authoritative. Mm-hmm. and uh, should be followed uh, to the letter of the law. So we found out that as as I'm digging into them and as we're finding all these discrepancies and working out, I, I will show X, Y, Z, all these reasons why the theology I believe is supported by scripture and mm-hmm. contradicts what they believe. And then the answer that they would give me every single time is, well, you believe that and I understand it, but... I have a testimony. I have knowledge from Jesus Christ himself that the Book of Mormon is true and that uh, all of the doctrine of the church is correct and that I will follow it. Uh, so it's an out, it's a trump card. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that other uh, Christians or um, even all Mormons necessarily go to that, but you really have to be careful because it can be dangerous and it can be an excuse to either be lazy with your doctrine or uh, to contradict doctrine uh, in order to do what you want. That might be a little bit of a caricature, but that's how I run into it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's that's a it's a huge portion of of what we're talking about in the sense of, yeah, how, how much authority does the scripture have? Is it authentic? Is it real? Is this trustworthy? Is it true? All those things. I think when people ask that question, because right, look at the again the statement again. We're examining this one hypothetical situation. God told me to tell you guys that we need to start giving more money to the church. Okay. Is it, is it good to give money to the church? Is it, I mean, I, I think so because I wouldn't have a paycheck if it wasn't for people giving uh, to the church. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's good in the sense of like, yeah, I can look at the Bible and the Bible says, yeah, we should, we should give uh, to, to, to the, to the church, to the, the people that are, that are helping us out spiritually, um, whatever, fill in the blank. And yet, 
there's not a specific verse that says this is how much money you should be giving um, or you, that you should be giving more. Like, right, that's, there's so much, um, it's, it's so objective, right, for somebody to give a phrase or, or, or anything like this. God told me to tell you, and even if there is a hint of scriptural validity to what they're saying, well, what does the scripture actually say about it? And, and so that was kind of the whole point of this whole, I don't know, mini lecture is that, okay, the Bible is my highest authority. Um, and so, again, we're in, in, in months, maybe we'll get to gifts of the Holy Spirit and how does the Spirit work and communicate through people. I don't think that really has anything to do with what we're talking about now. Because I think what we're talking about now is just scripture. And so that when, when people say something, this is what God is saying. Yeah, how do we say, actually, this is what God already did say. You know what I mean? Um, and do it in a loving way and care about them and, and, you know what I mean? Not make them feel like idiots, but just to say, yeah, it's good to give to the church. But let's look, about, let's look at this. Do you, do you know how much money I'm giving to the church? Okay, then maybe... You know, so I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit it on the head there, Brian. Um, it, it's it's important to bring it back to the fact that not only is not going to scripture not a good idea, but you really do need to go to scripture um, and and find out what is truly there. And it can be a difficult process. I mean, the Bible is sixty six books. It's pretty big. There's a lot of content in there, and it can be a lot of work to. Uh, rifle through the whole thing and determine what is correct. So, um, I mean, when you, when you approach it, it can be overwhelming, but I found it helpful to understand whenever, whenever you're considering what, what someone is saying, but especially in a theological sense or doctrinal sense, you have to ask the question, is that consistent? And that applies to one, is it consistent with the Bible? But two, when I'm interpreting the Bible, am I being consistent with itself? You know, if you're reading through John and you you come upon a passage and you decide all of a sudden that, uh, or, or maybe even let's take the example of what you talked about earlier, Brian, uh, the gospel of Thomas, and we decide that women, uh, as they are, untransformed cannot go to heaven. Well, that's completely inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So you've got to understand something's wrong here. And that's the same thing with uh, with what, what uh, you know, this person in our small group who's telling us we need to give more can do. Well, God shows in, in scripture that he doesn't necessarily care about the amount we give, but he cares about the intention of why we're giving yep. and how are we doing that? What's our motivation? Um, so that's not being consistent with what he has already revealed. Yeah, right. And it's not to be d- dismissive, you know, of like if somebody says that to be like, oh, you, you're crazy, you're an idiot. No, like I, there's, there's some validity to what you're saying and, and there are some verses. Let's, let's look at the Bible and this is what it's saying. That's great. Um, so is that what you mean? Right. And I guess every time I ask these questions in, in class, you know, which I really appreciate everybody's first reaction is like, well, I would probably ask some clarifying questions. And it's like, yeah, well, of course you would. Right. I mean, what did you mean? God told you, right. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's examine that for a little bit. Right. Um, and oops, sorry, bump the mic. Um, but yeah, so anyways, no one, any, any thoughts on that too? I think Matt hit it on the head, uh, especially with you just saying, yeah, asking clarifying questions is good. We want to listen to someone well, and we want to uh, have them feel heard and genuinely engaged by community through the question. But yeah, we, we do need 
consistency, epistemological proof, as in we need to know the truthiness of something, be able to weigh that. And since we're so wibbly wobbly, uh, it's difficult to actually say that we're solid enough to make a definite statement. And so it is nice to have authority in scripture. Yeah, totally. And so I, I have a couple of questions or other questions I want to go through. But the second one that I wanted to ask you was like, how do we know our Bible is reliable? But I think what we've been saying has been a lot of tying into that of, of the conformity of that, right? We can talk about the Gospel of Thomas, which, which I mentioned before, but how does the whole story of the Bible point to this thing, right? Um, any Any thoughts, though, on that? Like, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on on how we know our Bible is reliable? Yeah, I think one of the primary things that brought me to trust in the reliability of the Bible, there was, yes, a historical record. I think that the Christian story must be grounded in history. It must be a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was a very real man that walked the earth and taught because if Jesus didn't exist, then our religion shouldn't exist. We, we should be pitied, as the New Testament letters say. Right. But for me, there was a consistency of thought that was prevalent throughout the Bible that drew me to it. There was a, uh, a, cons- a, a storyline that was threaded through the whole canon that I think drove me. And as I thought about, uh, does God exist? Yes. What would this God be like? Um, for me, even uh, there, there, there's uh, I don't know if you talked about it in the previous podcast, Brian, but just there's this this doctrine of common grace where people are able to think rightly, uh, even though they might not be enlightened by Jesus, so to speak. And so, when I was a Christian, I'm sorry, before I was a Christian, Aristotle's metaphysics were actually really influential on me, where he talks about this concept of an unmoved mover and then Mm -hmm. starts to describe there must be someone outside of time and space who exists and then acts and interacts with the world in these ways. And then he goes on to describe what this unmoved mover must be like and how he's the origin of all things. Aquinas picked that up later and then put it in a Christian sense. And when I picked it up in just a couple of years ago now, it's really not that long ago, I saw, you know, this necessitates a God to reveal himself in a, in a certain way. And I remember when I was in your class, I wrote an essay talking about why it had to be a written and revealed canon. It had to be something that was solid. It had to be something that was put into language that people could understand because God desires to be known. And so he encapsulated himself in a medium by which people could understand him and know him. And so uh, I think that was a start. And the consistency, the storyline throughout scripture um, is something that really, really drove it home for me in seeing it as a Bible that, that, excuse me, as a document or a set of documents that could be trusted. Yeah, no, that's great. It was, was Aquinas the one that said he was the uncaused cause? Was that his language? He used the uncaused cause. He tried to uh, Christianize Aristotle a little bit. Um, Yeah, there's actually, that's, it's great. I'm glad you brought that up because there, there's uh, the analogy of the, I don't know, the, the four blind men, um, observing an elephant you guys heard this illustration before 
Yeah. Uh, right. Where the, where one blind guy is, you know, feels the, the stomach or the side of the elephant and he goes, Oh, it's, it's a wall. You know, one grabs his trunk and he's like, whatever, this is a, a hose. Uh, you know, one grabs the, a leg and he's like, this is a tree trunk. Um, and, and, but the thing is, Nolan, what you just brought up is the idea though, that, that we may not have a full perspective on all these different elements of, of, who God is and how do we know who God is? And we can do our best to try to analyze. And, but, but what God has done with scripture is he's actually standing there next to us who are the blind men trying to figure out what this thing is in front of me. And he's describing it and he's saying, Oh no, you're actually, that's a leg, right? That's, that's the side of the, of the elephant. That's the trunk of the elephant. And he's describing things and, and he's doing as best as he can in human language to describe what a white tusk is to a blind man. Um, and he takes real language and, and, and puts himself on a level that we can comprehend and understand to the best of our ability. And when one of my favorite verses is in Job 42, where Job just says, uh, God, I, I now understand I can't understand, you know what I mean? And, and that's kind of kind of what it is. Even though he's revealing who he is, there's some mysteries there that I can't wrap my head around. And yet, I would know nothing about this God if if these scriptures aren't true. Um, so good. Um, well, let's 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 just take some time for one more question here. Um, why why did early Christians feel a need to establish an authoritative list of scripture? I kind of talked about this, but. I want to know what, what your thoughts are on, on that. Nolan just got tossed the ball. <laughs> Nolan came much more prepared than I did, so I'm just lobbing him all the difficult ones. <laughs> just talk about all my, my life examples. Man. Uh, yeah. Uh, the idea of a holy book is not, is not new to any world religion. Uh, it, it, an idea of holy texts or books existed before Christianity and were in it were present in the time of early Judaism. Well, um, right. I mean, and even even the majority of our Bible was already approved by another major world religion, which was right Judaism. Uh, so yeah, it's, it was not, not nothing new here, right? So we're really talking about the New Testament, but yeah, keep going. Yeah, talk. It, it, in considering the formation of a canon, it's not surprising that early Christians would want to form a canon uh, or that they saw it necessary to form a canon because if they understood that there was a God who revealed himself in his son and desired to encapsulate his words so that he could be remembered, revered, and learned and known throughout generations after he ascended into heaven, he would have trapped in some ways uh, his message in words so that humans could keep them and understand them and memorize them and write them down. And so pretty early on, there was a rapid multiplication of Christian texts, which ended up becoming many documents of the New Testament. Uh, many of them were chain letters. The book of Revelation is written to 13 churches that's not right. Yeah, that is right. It's written to 13 churches uh, in a, along a trade route in Asia Minor. 
And so it was a chain letter. So it was multiplied each time it arrived at a different church. And so that was the case with a lot of these Christian texts. And so uh, it it wasn't until about, um, oh, about the 300s, 170 AD, somewhere in that range, people started putting together canon lists because Mm -hmm. they said, we need to formulize and we need to be able to have a coherent body in canon in order to really speak against heresies that were popping up. Um, and they looked at books that Christian churches had been using. And in one sense, not in one sense, but many of them had been using the same books uh, and even treated them as such. There's a passage in, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's uh, Peter, right? Where he says, Paul is hard to understand. Um, so even within the new Testament itself, there's a reference to itself that's treating the writings of Paul as more scripture. And as early as even extra biblical sources, uh, sources in the nineties, uh, Clement, uh, who was a early Christian father, he wrote a letter that quoted Hebrews as scripture, or at least alluded to scripture, uh, Hebrews as scripture. And so, Right. Um, yeah. So really the main reasons Christians felt the need to form a canon, one was to have a definite stance and a definite corpus of literature to speak authoritatively and firmly against heresies that had risen up. Things like Gnosticism or uh, Arianism um, or Docetism. These are all early heresies, uh, heresies that threatened the body of the church uh, and authoritative teaching. And so uh, when Constantine became emperor, he organized a council called the Council of Nicaea, which said, hey, you as Christians, you need to create a consistent and agreed upon corpus of literature, which you can call your canon and holy scriptures. Um, and that's that's when the canon was really formed. But I, I, I think the reason the early Christian fathers felt the need to formulate that canon was, one, they knew it was there. And they just needed to agree upon it because they knew God was working and God was revealing himself. And they just wanted to say, I recognize that these texts are divine and I recognize that they are holy and I want to call them that officially. Um, And they also needed firm doctrine to rely on and look at to speak against heresies. So I don't know if you have anything to add. Either Brian or no, I mean, Matt. other than other than what you just mentioned, I mean, they that's the thing is there was two two kind of camps, and I already mentioned this in the podcast, but of they then they find when they finally did come together under under uh, uh, Constantine, it was like oh we're already we're already using this right. I don't have the exact dates and all that, but um, but that's the exact same New Testament that we have today. I mean, they they were using the same books that we're using, which again is just to me is like okay. Uh, I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket, but yet it is kind of cool that, you know, these people all the way back then were like, yep, these are the books we agree upon and we don't agree upon them because someone told us to, we agree upon them because something's in these books, something special about them. Right. Even, even the fact that when we look at like first and second Corinthians, when really it's probably first and fourth or second and fourth Corinthians that we have a couple letters that, that are missing um, is, to say that these are the two that survived. These are the two that, that are uh, essential to our, our Christian faith. So um, Matt, any, any last words from you about anything? Well, I think uh, you and 
and Professor Bauer over here took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, I'm a little out of my league here on the, the systematic theology side of it. But um, no, a, a lot of the points you actually did hit on, I think that um, you think of the early church and they were spreading incredibly fast over a large geographic area. And um, there were early heresies that developed as Nolan mentioned. And so in any organization, you need to have some sort of solid, consistent body of truth that can guide you to maintain unity. And so it was necessary. And I remember uh, when I learned that it wasn't, you know, I'd been taught and I always thought this growing up and even through early bits of college that it was, you know, that we had the Council of Nicaea and they voted on it. You know, a bunch of the church fathers just raised their hand. I want this one. I want this one. The rest are out. And it was, uh, you know, kind of a, a little democratic vote there, but that's not how it was. And I think your, your quote earlier from FF Bruce really nailed that home that, uh, you know, these, these were already generally accepted and, um, consistent in the church already. So, um, it's, it's just important to know that it wasn't because I, I've also, but I can tell dozens of people doing, when doing evangelism, people have told me that, you know, we, they just voted on the books one day. Why do you have to trust these people that you've never met? You know, how do you know they were right when they just voted? Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't happen. You got, you've got to understand that. Yeah. And I, and again, a big part of it too is, is Constantine. And it's like, yeah, was he a big part of it? Yeah, of course. I've, I've been to Rome. They have a huge arch uh, right next to the Colosseum. That's like, this is Constantine's. This was how, this is when, uh, you know, Rome or, or when Italy became, that wasn't Italy then, but uh, when it, be, but it became Christian, right? And it's a, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And yet, how much of that was just political? And I and I think f- to try to religious, I don't know, throw throw something on Constantine as he was this Christian hero of the faith. Ah, man, we got to be careful there. I, I really do think a lot of that was political, and yet it did help to further uh, what we have, right? Um, in some way, because we weren't being persecuted um on the on those levels you know yeah and and i also think it's fair to mention that um we don't only have to approach this from a naturalistic mindset um i i think i mean you can kind of run circles around yourself with how you believe and you know what your apologetic is but uh and, and the presuppositions you're willing to make but we do believe as christians as theists we do believe that there is a sovereign being who is able to intervene in history and so I think that's important to mention, and Brian hit on it at the very beginning, was that yeah, these, these were inspired men, inspired from God, and the Holy Spirit carried them through this. It's not just that they had an awesome memory and were able to, um, you know, be perfect by themselves. And it's not that they just uh, happened to be in the right situation at the right time. It's uh, God was able and willing to allow his word to be preserved. And he did that. He promises he's going to do that. Uh, and and there's reason to believe that he did as well. So um, I think it's important and necessary to go at it from a historical mindset and a, a lens of what what can you prove, quote unquote, with with physical historical evidence. Mm-hmm. But remember, there there is more to it, and we do believe in a God who can intervene and can maintain His truth. Yeah, Nolan, I see the wheels turning. Let's uh, give give us a, a final thought here. Yeah, no, I I just want to say amen to what. Uh, what Matt said. I think if we believe, as I do, that God is sovereign and he is, all of history is not 
out of line. He's not wringing his hands over whether the Bible will survive. Will survive. Mm-hmm. It's all according to plan. And so even when the canon was being formed, I think we as Christians have the flexibility to say, yeah, although Constantine definitely had political interests in the unity amongst Christians because there was a, definitely an infusion of politics, it's okay, I think, to say that God used that in order to firm up the canon. Um, and yeah, just amen to what Matt said. I, I was just pulling up some information and saw that, yeah, earlier 170 was, was right, but the canon, the, the canon by the time the Council of Nicaea came around had been suggested at least three times. Right. And so it's not... Uh, it, it's not like all of a sudden they said, what books do you want to use? It right, was, well, these, right. These were the books that were recognized. And even some books that were previously included in the canon, like the Shepherd of Hermas, were excluded in the future um, over a process of discernment. Yeah, right. And again, that's that whole conformity thing, right? And ap- apostolicity, and I'm saying that wrong. Uh, and and Catholicity and, and whatever, right? I'm mean, just those 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 three aspects though of of that is they're they're huge. Um, anyways, guys, thank you so much, Matt and Nolan, for uh, for doing this with me, and um, we're kind of just kicking this thing off and and getting this ball rolling when it comes to the doctrines and and so thank you for being here, and uh, you know maybe maybe we'll have to have you guys uh, again in the future. And uh, Matt, maybe maybe I can be on your show at some point. So we'll we'll pencil you in. I think we're going to have to do that. Perfect. Hey, Matt Nolan, thank you so much for being uh, my guest on Sunday Rewind. Thank you for your knowledge, uh, your uh, input on this of just getting a little bit more practical on this doctrine of the Bible. And so, yeah, if you're listening, thank you for listening to Sunday Rewind. And uh, hope, hope that we'll see you again next week. Thanks. Thanks again for joining me today on Sunday Rewind. I hope it was informative as well as helpful in your everyday life as you pursue your walk with Jesus as Lord.